Good morning, Northbrook. If you would like to locate Revelation 15 in your Bibles, we'll be reading the entire chapter together this morning. To this point, as we've been working our way through Revelation, I've been trying to keep us moving and not get bogged down in this letter. This is a revelation. So I've been trying to each week do a different chapter, just keep moving and cover a different chapter and um, sometimes not being able to cover everything that I would like to, but at least getting the big idea from each chapter. And then we reached chapter 14, and when I started really looking at chapter 14, I felt like it was such a pivotal moment in the letter that we ended up spending three weeks in chapter 14 alone. And I don't intend to do that again, but we spent more time there because of its content, and particularly because of its call for unbelievers to repent in in light of looming judgment. And that just kind of compelled me to try and communicate more detail of the revelation. You've probably noticed over the last couple of weeks, and last week was particularly long and I felt really bad about how long I went. And uh, so I apologize for that. But um, uh, particularly last week, the last two weeks, you might have noticed that there is much more, there has been much more of an emphasis on a call for unbelievers to repent and turn to God because that is the emphasis in chapter 14 and it's going to kind of come up in chapter 16 again but I wanted to communicate more of that detail there and as part of that as part of chapter 14 as I've mentioned many times chapter 14 kind of brings us to what I call a tipping point and after chapter 14 um everything kind of starts to move forward and God's wrath is, is completely revealed. I said to Terry and Alyssa at a dinner this week that um, I'm reaching the point in Revelation where we keep coming up to that final judgment and then it changes to something. And then it comes up to that final judgment again and it changes to something else. And I said to them, that I, I'm at the point of, come on, let's just kind of get this over with, you know? Let's, let's get to that and, and then move on from there. But as we will see in chapter 15, and particularly in chapter 16, uh, we'll see that final judgment. Chapter 17 and 18 are a revelation. It's interesting. Two chapters are spent in this book of just revealing to John the destruction of Babylon and what that looked like. And it's really a... Uh, it's a celebration that Babylon is not only powerless, but Babylon is now gone. And then chapter 19, we get into um, marriage supper of the lamb and uh, a few other things. Um, and then chapter 20 will be on, uh, he talks about the millennium. I said to someone this morning, the millennium is a bugaboo for me. So you'll find that out when we get there but we'll talk about the millennium. And then there's one more picture of Christ's final judgment, which lines up with chapter 16. And then we're into the great white throne judgment and then the new heaven and the new earth in chapters 20 and 21 and 22. So that's where we're going. For this morning though, we're gonna focus on just a few verses in chapter 15. The rest of chapter 15 really goes with chapter 16. So we'll look at that next week. But we're gonna look this morning at verses uh, two, three, and four of chapter 15. 
But to that end, I want to set the context by reading all of chapter 15. So if you want to follow along with me in chapter 15, we're going to see the final outpouring of the finishing of God's wrath as it begins and moves into chapter 16. We'll read all of 15, focus on three verses this morning. So beginning in chapter one of chapter, I mean, verse one of chapter 15. John says, then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name standing beside, and really that word should be on, that's a poor translation in the ESV, standing on the sea of glass with harps of gold in their hands. And they sang the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God, the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. After this I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened. And out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen, with golden sashes around their chests. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let us consider the steadfast love of the Lord. This chapter opens and closes with an important word. In verse one, which is actually a summary of the main events of chapters 15 and 16. I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. That is a summary statement of chapters 15 and 16. But, chapter, but verse one, we're told of these seven angels and these seven plagues through which the wrath of God is finished. Finished. And later in verse eight, we're told that no one could enter God's sanctuary in heaven until the seven plagues of the seven angels are finished. What that means is we are coming, we are right on the cusp of the final judgment of unbelievers. Chapter 16 is going to reveal to us the horror. Honestly, if you really begin to engage with the vision of chapter 16, what's related to us, it's horrific. It's gonna show us the horror and the really unimaginable scope of God's judgment against sinners, those who reject his offer of salvation. When we speak of the wrath of God, and I'll get into this more next week, but just to kind of put this out there today, when we speak of the wrath of God, when you hear those terms, we should not think in terms of human anger. 
where human anger, we're going along fine and something happens that makes us really mad. You know how we're like that? It, it's not a, something that just happens and then anger rises in us until we release it in some way and then it subsides. With God, this is something that is deep-seated. When you think about the wrath of God, it's something that's deep-seated and it's abiding. It's there. Ever since sin has happened, the wrath of God has been in place. And the wrath of God is in some ways less an emotion and more of the outpouring of judgment on sin. It's not exclusively judgment. It's also not exclusively anger. It is something that is abiding and has been present and builds to a certain extent. Romans talks about kind of like the idea of a dam holding back water when it comes to the wrath of God. But there is going to be a point when that wrath is unleashed. And I, I want to also plant this seed in your mind for next week. While chapter 16 shows us how horrific the judgment of God is going to be as the wrath of God is poured out, I think that it is important for us to consider seeing the images of God's wrath being poured out. I think it's important for us to consider what Jesus endured as he died on the cross. Because he took our wrath. He took, he took the wrath of God, he took the judgment of God on himself. So I think chapter 16 should illuminate in some ways for us what, what Jesus experienced as he hung on the cross that day. And the wrath of God for our sin was poured out on him. But for today, I wanna to draw your attention to the three verses I mentioned chapter, in chapter 15, two, three, and four. And it's just a, it's a nice respite. In the midst of the judgment of God happening, the messages of the three angels in chapter 14 where it talks about um, that God, that, that those who have worshiped the beast and received his image, they will drink of the wine of God's wrath, pulled full strength in the cup of his anger. He'll be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels, in the presence of the lamb, and the smoke of the torment goes up forever and ever. And we come to the end of chapter 14, where it talks about the harvests. And I, I argued last week that, the, that there's a harvest of believers and then there's a harvest of unbelievers, which is parallel to when Jesus returns. But verse 20 in chapter 14 ends with, the winepress was trodden outside the city and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia or 200 miles. We got these sad, scary, gross images and we move into chapter 15 but before John reveals to us the vision of the final judgment he's led by the Holy Spirit to share a vision of what I would call peace and beauty in the presence of this same God this God who is going to bring terrible judgment on earth and on humankind is also a God where in his presence for his people, there is peace 
and beauty and music. It's highly appropriate for us as we gather to worship to sing together, not because it is the whole point of worship, as I've said in the past, not because it's a, something that we do to get people to come and listen to preaching, but rather it's, it's highly appropriate to sing because that is the example of what we're going to be doing a lot in the future and eternity. That God's people in God's presence, reflecting on the character and person of God, sing. And so in these verses, where there's also this vision of music in heaven. There are songs of worship that rise up in the air, proclaiming the character and person of God, who he is and what he's done and what it means for humanity. Somebody has said, if you don't like attending church because you think it's boring, probably you're not going to like heaven because there's going to be a lot of similar things going on. It's not going to be eternity with the church service, but there will be a lot of discussion of God's word, I believe, because it's going to be time of understanding it in ways we never have in the past. There'll be a lot of time, I think, throughout the days of eternity. You say there are no days in eternity. There are seasons, so there must be days. So there's some kind of time schedule going on in eternity. But there'll be a lot of time where we're working and talking about God's word and talking about God and what God has done. And there will be a lot of time of singing. Every time pretty much we've seen a vision of God with his people in Revelation, there's singing going on. So these songs of worship come up from God's people. Earlier in chapter four, if you can remember way back to chapter four, John told us of a vision that he saw of the throne of God. And it's a really, to me, a cool vision. God is enthroned. Pure light is coming out from him on his throne. There's an emerald rainbow. Remember that rainbow? That it's a 360 degree rainbow. It's not a half one. It's a full circle of emerald colors or green colors, which I, I really want to see that. And Sitting on his throne at the base of his throne are four living creatures. They're weird, different faces, face of an eagle, face of a human, face of a lion, and I think the fourth one is the face of an ox. But there's these four living creatures that are under the throne. Their, their heads are full of eyes, and their bodies are animal bodies, wings, six wings that they fly with. There's elders, there's 24 uh, or. You know, 24 elders seated on thrones around the throne of God. And in front of the throne are the eyes of God, referring to the Holy Spirit. And the Lamb is in front of the throne. And then seemingly coming out from God's throne, and God's throne actually sitting on it, but coming out from God's throne is a sea of glass, crystal. Ezekiel describes it as well, that there's this crystal like sea or pavement and when we look at Moses and the the uh, leaders that I talked about in communion a few weeks ago the the uh, Moses and the leaders of Israel go up on the mountain to meet God and they see God and all they describe is his feet 
they don't describe the rest of them, they just describe his feet sitting on a pavement of sapphire, clear. I think they're all the same images of God on this crystal sea. And so here in this chapter, we see that sea again. We aren't hearing about the flashes of lightning. We're not hearing about the rumblings of loud voices. We're not hearing of loud thunder. There's no imagery of the living creatures in this. But rather, the vision has changed a bit. The sea is still present. John says he sees a sea of glass, crystal clear, mingled with fire. So the sea is present, but there's fire coming up out of it. I think that's significant in relation to what's about to happen. It's, it's indicative of, of something that is pending. And as you look closer at this sea, you will notice that there are also people standing on the sea. Again, the uh, ESV translates it as beside the sea, but most of the other translations use the word on, and the Greek word that's used there is the word that is used on. So these people are standing on the sea in the midst of these flames that are coming up on the sea. I can't spend time on it this morning, but I will just throw out to you that God said to his people, when you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. Speaking of the judgment that's coming to Judah, he says to those who, who pursue him, you will not be burned. I know the plans that I have for you. And his plans for them are to go through severe judgment, but they won't be burned, they won't be drowned. Remember the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. As they were put into the fiery furnace, they didn't burn. There wasn't even the smell of smoke on them. They were in the fire, the, the ropes around them burned off, but they were not touched by the flames. And a little known fact about Moses and his receiving of the Ten Commandments is when he went up on the mountain alone, we're told the mountain was on fire kind of like the burning bush, but the bush was not consumed. As the people were down below and they watched uh, Moses walk up the side of that mountain and go out of their sight, the mountain was on fire. And he walked up into the presence of God and that mountain was on fire the whole time that Moses was up on the mountain, but he was not burned. And here we have God's people on this sea in the midst of these flames and it's not touching them. It's no threat to them. I will just throw this out that I believe that the flames are representing the coming of the final judgment in chapter 16. But God's people are safe with God in the midst of that judgment. The flames do not touch them. And as we come to this imagery that John sees, it seems that heaven's angels have fallen silent, listening to God's people play their harps and listening to the words and the voices of the singers on the sea. 
There's a part in the scriptures where it talks about how the angels want to understand what believers know. That the angels try to look into, they try to understand, they actually, it's the idea of stretching your neck around the corner is what the word really means. To try and see and to try and understand what God's people experience through redemption in Jesus Christ. We hear of the angels rejoicing on the day when God created all that there is. And here, where all the other singing, it seems that there are angels involved to some degree or another, except when they sing the song of the redeemed, here, as God's people sit in peace and beauty on a fiery sea with harps, they sing and the angels are quiet those millions of angels, maybe you can hear rustling of wings, but they're not singing. And who are the musicians? I've said they're God's people, but John gets more specific. They are those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name. They are the people who have conquered through the blood of the Lamb. Earlier in Revelation, it talks about the beast and it talks about his fury and it talks about his mark and his number. But these people, as mentioned earlier, are those who through the blood of the Lamb have conquered and by the word of their testimony, they conquered because they, they didn't love their lives even unto death. It was more important to them to love God than it was to love their lives, to love life. They were not concerned with dying for the name of Jesus because they loved Jesus and they knew what awaited them. These singers that are standing on the sea are faithful, obedient, blood-bought believers who follow the Lamb and proclaim the Lamb, whatever the cost. Who knows? You might be one of them. Who knows how close we are to the final judgment? Who knows how close we are to the unveiling of the beast? Who knows how close we are to walking through those steps and as Revelation talks about the ones who conquer through the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony, some of those people could be us. And some of those people on the sea could be us. In peace and beauty, in the presence of God. And the songs they sing we're told that they sing in verse 3, the song of Moses, the servant of the Lamb, and the song of the Lamb. The song of Moses, which maybe someday I'll preach on the song of, of Moses, but if you want to look it up and read it, it's in Deuteronomy chapter 32. Deuteronomy chapter 32. Deuteronomy, just to put it in a timeline for you, 
Exodus is the story of them leaving Egypt and going out to Mount Sinai and receiving, uh, participating in the covenant ceremony with God. Um, numbers, we've, we've studied numbers. That is their time of going right to the verge of the promised land and then refusing to go in and going through 40 years in the wilderness. And Leviticus is the uh, information of all of the components of the law and the sacrificial worship of God. And then Deuteronomy is where Moses addresses the the offspring of the first generation that left Exodus. Remember, God said, this generation will not go in. Anyone over a certain age will not go into the land. You will die in the wilderness. And as I've said many times, in the wilderness wanderings, I just, I just, I know myself. So I would have had a checklist with everyone's name who was over that age, checking it there. George is gone, <laughs> Henrietta is gone. And just going down that list until, you know, as I've said before, what it would have been like to be the last one left from the generation that was not allowed to go into land. And every day everybody's checking to see if you're still alive or not. Because once they're dead, then they can go into the land. So Deuteronomy is Moses addressing that second generation, that younger generation that didn't die in the wilderness. And what he does with them is basically a new covenant ceremony. He, t he gives them the law again, thus the name Deuto, two, or second, uh, anomy, law, Deuteronomy, the second giving of the law. He gives this second generation the law again and commits them to covenant living with God. And at the end of Deuteronomy, Moses is gonna die. And Joshua is going to begin to lead the people. And then the next book of the Bible is Joshua, which is the story of the people going into the land and taking the land for themselves. The story of Jericho. But at the end of Deuteronomy, Moses knows his time is limited. And so he shares with them a poem. And, and that, that poem is his last words to them. That's Deuteronomy 32. And he talks to them about wonderful things that God has done for them. And he calls them to obedience. He reminds Israel of the goodness and the love and the mercy that God has shown them. But he also then speaks to them of God's justice and God's righteousness and the judgment that will come upon those who rebel against him. There's an interesting thing in Deuteronomy where Moses tells them about blessing and curse. And, and he says, if you, if you obey God, he's gonna bless you. If you don't obey God, he's gonna curse you. And oh, by the way, you're not gonna obey him. And you're gonna go into captivity. He warns them of that. And he says, the reason is because you have uncircumcised hearts. What a, what a great leader, huh? <laughs> you need to go take the land. But by the way, you're not gonna obey God because you need your hearts circumcised. You have hard hearts towards God. And his work, his prophecy comes through. His, wor his word comes to be true in the end. 
But his last words to the people are, what he's just said to them, this is no empty word for you, but your very life. And by this word, you shall live long in the land that you are going over to the Jordan to possess. And I don't know if Moses knew it or not, but his words spoke far beyond one physical group of people and one tiny plot of land in the Middle East. Don't ever be confused about the land of Israel. Because what God has promised to his people is not a geographical part of the Middle East. What God has promised to his people is a new heaven and a new earth. The Jews failed. They failed to obey God. This is maybe for another day, but you will find in the prophets that God literally divorces from his people. That's the word, I divorce you. And he moves forward and he brings in the Gentiles. And God's people today are made up of some Jews and a lot of Gentiles. And we look forward to going in a promised land called the new earth, where from the rising of the sun to the setting of the sun, from the sea to the sea, from the river to the river, God's name is worshiped. What was commanded to Adam in the garden will be fulfilled by Jesus and his people on the new earth. But after Moses shares these words with God's people at that time, God comes to him and says, it's time. Come with me. Your time is up. And those were Moses' last words to the people. The song of Moses. But there's a second song here called the song of the lamb. We don't know what the song of the lamb is. All I can guess is that there is a song in Revelation 5, and it might be the song of the lamb. And you might remember it, that Revelation 5 is where there is a scroll that needs to be opened. And when it's open and the seals are broken, it will begin to uh, 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 reveal the the final days of this earth and what God is doing. That judgment will come, that justice will reign and God's people will live with him forever. And there's a call for one who is worthy to open the seals and John begins to weep because nobody responds. And that elder touches him and says, hey man, don't weep. The lion of the tribe of Judah has conquered. And a song breaks out in heaven for Jesus. Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransom people from every tribe and language and people and nation and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. That could possibly be the song of the lamb, but we don't know for sure. But the song of Moses is being sung out. The song of the Lamb is being sung out. And the messages of those songs are combined together. And I think John summarizes those songs in the words we hear in chapter 15. Great 
and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. In so many ways, all of what has been revealed to John in these visions that he's had and to us is wrapped up in this fragment of what the people sing on the sea. But the scope of these words also summarize the entire revelation of God to us in the Bible. As we read these few words, this is just a big picture summary of who our God is. Our God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, three individual persons, yet one God, have done such a great and amazing things on this planet and in this universe. Think of that very familiar verse that the psalmist wrote. When I consider the works of your hands, the sun, the moon, and the stars above, what is mankind that you even think of us? You are great and amazing. And as I think about that verse written by a psalmist maybe 3,000 years ago, who all he had was to look up in the sky and see the sun going in its course day after day, the consistency of it, and see the moon come out at night, and to see the, the, on a full moon, to see the light of that moon light up the ground in a shadowy way, and to look out on a dark night and see the myriad of stars that are out there. How much greater should our amazement of God be when we have the Hubble telescope and the James Webb telescope? And we're finding out that the stars we can see are just a minute fraction of what's out there. And the images that are coming back to us. There was one the other day that I saw that they've, they've now concluded that basically our galaxy exists like a ball and it's filled with dust. It's filled with space dust. And they had a 3D model of it. And then the world is this little tiny dot inside of this huge ball that forms our galaxy that's just filled with space dust. And there we are. And, and, and we're just one of what they speculate now to be millions of galaxies. When I consider the works of your hands, what is man that you are even mindful of? Why do you even think about us? We're specks of dust on a bigger speck of dust. We're less than the who's in Whoville. On the dandelion that Horton holds. Our God is great and amazing. He is God all-powerful. And then think for a moment of his integrity. 
This God, with this kind of power, that He can speak and the heavens are made. This God, what would you do with that kind of power? What do we see when people get power? How many of you have worked jobs and you've worked with a person who seems like an everyday nice person and they get promoted to some piddly job that has a little bit of power and all of a sudden they're walking around telling everybody what to do like they just own the world? We know what power does to people. That's why I don't put a lot of hope in anybody who gets elected to be president or any other position. Because we know what power does to people. It doesn't corrupt people. It gives them the freedom to to use their corruption. You say, that's a very cynical view. Yeah. I told Terry the other day, you know, there's the people who are half glass, you know, there's that whole half glass controversy. And the optimists see it as half full. And the pessimists see it as half empty. And I told her, I figured out, I'm the guy that knows there's no water in there. All that's left is a ring from the water that was originally there. And you're, you're arguing about how much is in there and there's nothing there. You're just arguing over a ring. Oh yeah, I'm a cynic. But all you gotta do is read the Bible to see what happens to people when they get power. The shepherd after God's own heart, David, got power. And it was ugly. And he's the best of the men in, in, in power. Again, God called him the man after my own heart because he has a shepherd's heart. But God, who has all of this power, is a person of integrity. This song says, just and true are your ways. Consider that God has never lied to you. He has never even tried to deceive you. There is no shadow of turning with him. There is no change of position. There is no change of of, uh, his promises. He is just and true. He has never taken advantage of you. He is pure and righteous. And this God who has all this power has always used that power for good. This God has made a way for every human being to be holy and righteous before him. He has made a way so that every human being can boldly come into his presence. The problem is not on God's side as to who may approach him. The problem is on man's side that he will not submit to God's demands so that he can approach him. He has shown goodness to the just and the unjust. His actions have been proven fully just and thus is the only one who deserves to reign over his creation. 
He is the best ruler humanity could ever want if humanity knew what was best for them. In verse 4, a very obvious logical question is asked. Why wouldn't anyone choose to live in awe of this God? Or maybe why would anyone choose not to live in awe of this God? Remember the, the angel flew over. Three angels flew over. Over the entire earth, one of these angels flew over and said, Fear God. Glorify God and worship God. A call from an angelic being to humanity. Why wouldn't a human being look up and go, huh, that's, huh. Fear God, be in awe of God. But you know what happens in chapter 16? I'm gonna give a little bit away. God sends judgment, and you know what the inhabitants of the earth who have just had an angel fly over and say, fear God, glorify God, and worship him? God says a judgment, and what those people do is they shake their fist at him. They grind their teeth at him. They curse him. Because they don't believe he has a right to judge them. Because they don't live in awe of him. Why wouldn't humanity glorify his name? Consider his holiness. Consider that he discriminates against no ethnicity. He says, you are holy. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? All we have to do is look at the fact that you are the only one who is holy. All we have to do is look at the fact that all nations will come and worship you. You do not discriminate. If we want to talk about equity and equality, we should start with God. We should not start with richer people and say there's no equality and inequity because there are richer people and there's poorer people. We start with God and say, look at this God who is the most powerful, the most wealthy, the most wise, the most knowledgeable, and all he has ever done is what is good. And why don't we at least be in awe of him and think maybe I should be, try to be like him? But the problem is we live in a world where equality and equity flows from jealousy and covetousness. You have what I want, and therefore you should not have it. And God has always been, I am all you want, and I have all you ever need here. I'm here. As I've thought about this question though, who will not fear God and glorify your name? 
and considered my own responses to this God, I have to confess that there have been too many times when I haven't been in awe of him or wanted to worship him. So I thought about this passage and I thought about what's going to happen in chapter 16 and I, I think about those people just cursing God because of the judgment that's coming and their sense of that they don't deserve it. And I start to get this mindset of, you're idiots. You're idiots. These people in 16 are, are idiots. Why wouldn't they, after the first judgment, just go, we, we give, we give. You're right. And then I stop and think, well, A, they have hearts that are not regenerated. B, how are you better than them? And I'm pretty convinced through 21 years of pastoral ministry that I'm not alone in that boat because I've talked to a lot of people or observed a lot of people over the years who have things happen in their life and suddenly they're not in awe of that God and the songs that we sing to worship Him don't resonate. And they point fingers at Him and blame Him for their own choices and they don't want to worship Him. So I'm guessing even in the midst of you all that I think are really nice, good people, that you probably have had times of not being in awe of him or wanting to worship him. As I thought about this passage and this question, who will not be in awe of God and glorify his name, I thought how many times I've questioned his goodness when life went sideways. You know what I mean? Things went over here, I've got a plan here, and things went over here, and it wasn't pleasant, didn't feel good. I, I, it threw everything out of wonk. And all of a sudden, God's not good. I started thinking about how many times I have diminished His power by exalting myself. How many times I've stood in, in a pulpit and preached God's word, whether as a pastor or any other situation, and begin to realize that people are really tracking with me and I see the lights going on, and my first thought is not, God, you're an amazing God, that you're working through me in the lives of these people, but rather it's, oh, doing pretty good this morning. Doing a good job, John. And I'm not in awe of God. I'm in awe of me. How many times did I infer or want his, I, I, I saw him as unjust 
when those who pursued wickedness brought harm to myself or those I care for. If you were a just God, the wicked would not flourish. How many times did I put God under scrutiny because I didn't get what I wanted? How many times did I live with a heart or do I live with a heart that is not in awe of God and not wanting to worship God? And what about you? In some cases, people know what we've said or done that revealed our lack of awe of God. Sadly for Terry, she's had to listen to that from my mouth. I'm thankful that you don't know what my heart has thought. And I don't know yours. And I'm thankful for that. Because I would probably sit in judgment of you. But here's the wonder of it all. That God sent his one and only son to die for us and showed his mercy to us while we were still sinners. That one phrase should put us in awe of God. By grace, his favorite choice, he saved us not because of our works, but because of who he is. You realize that in those moments when we scrutinize God and we symbolically shake our fist at him and we accuse him and we question his goodness, that as his children, his love for us does not go. And in those moments, when we are in awe of him and we worship him and it's flowing from our hearts, his love doesn't go. He loved us while we were still sinners. And we stand before him in the righteousness of Christ. There is never a moment where God says, you know what, I'm not thinking that good about you today, if you're one of his children. If you're one of his children, it is always, come to me. I love you. I want you. You need me. And that one fact alone, knowing who we are and knowing what humanity is like should make us sit back and say, you're amazing. I've come to the conclusion, simple though this thought may be, that we don't live in awe of God because we forget what he accomplished for us through the Christ on the cross. 
We get our eyes on things, we get our eyes on events, we get our eyes on possessions, we get our eyes on everything else but who God is and what he's about. And we forget what he did for us through Christ and our awe begins to diminish. I was thinking this week, at the moment when Jesus cried out, it is finished. It is finished. In that moment when he cried that out, that was a far greater moment than any meteor shower or the northern lights on a clear dark night. I lived in Wisconsin in the middle of nowhere where there wasn't much light pollution. And we would see the northern lights quite often. It was, it was not unusual during the winter months to see the green on the horizon most every night. And I remember one night walking home from work and uh, I was looking up and the northern lights were just incredible that night. And it was, it was up in the middle of the sky. It wasn't on the horizon. And there were, I mean, there was green on the horizon, but up in the sky, there were streaks of red and streaks of blue and streaks of white. They were just shooting out from the middle of the sky. It was the most incredible thing I've ever seen and moving around. I remember a night when Terry and I were laying out on our picnic table during one of the meteors, the, the annual meteor showers, just laying out on the picnic table in the backyard when it was warm and seeing falling star after falling star coming down. And, and those are moments where you're just like, man, that is just incredible. But when Christ said, it is finished, that goes way beyond that. Way, 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 way beyond that. The gift of God's forgiveness and righteousness far exceeds any promotion or pay raise we could ever wish for. But what do we live for? That next rung on the ladder, that bump up of pay. And I'm not saying those things are insignificant. What I'm saying is they're not something that we should live in awe of or have our hearts yearn for. The reality of Jesus' suffering, the penalty for my sin, should overwhelm any injustice I ever have experienced in this life. And I want to close with this this morning just to remind you that we must not forget the cross. We have this thing up on the wall back here, this wooden cross, and it, I don't know about you, but you begin to come into the building and there's just things there you just don't even notice anymore. Right now it's kind of covered up by the screen, so the bottom of it sticks out. It's not a a physical thing that we must not forget. It is what Christ did on the cross that should never be forgotten. Because our hope is in the cross. Our hope is not found in us. Our hope is not found in the things we buy. Our hope is not found in the relationships we enjoy. The value, the satisfaction, the purpose of our life is linked to Jesus, died, buried, and risen again. And I would encourage you this morning that in your grief, in your frustration, in your perceived lack of purpose, in your failure, in your anger, in your I just don't care anymore. To look to the cross, 
and consider the amazing, just, true, holy, good, loving, kind God that loved you enough to die for you. Our entire life from when we were born as the children of God today was a line to the cross where God called us to know him. And our entire life since that moment is anchored in the cross as we look forward to a new heaven and a new earth. And in that, we see the goodness and the love and the mercy and the righteousness of God. These people sing a song on the sea. I encourage you this morning to hear and listen to and join in with them on the song of the sea. Let's pray. Father, I praise you for your goodness and your kindness and your mercy and your justice, your righteousness. I praise you for your power, your knowledge, your presence with us. I praise you that you make promises that you keep. Father, I pray that you would through the work of the Holy Spirit, cause us to see you and understand you to the point that we live in awe of you. I think of the words of the song, turn your eyes upon Jesus and the things of earth will grow strangely dim. May we understand in fuller ways what that song is trying to communicate and may we understand in fuller ways this song sung on the sea. And may you move our hearts to long to be with you and to join in with these people who have conquered through the blood of the Lamb. In your Son's name, amen.